0: I'm Max Kaiser. This is the Kaiser Report. We are in San Francisco at Bitcoin 2019. Fantastic event put on by Bitcoin Magazine. Some fantastic speakers and meeting a lot of interesting folks and new products. You know, we always like to bring you new products before anyone else hears about them. We got something coming up for you to take a look at soon. Stacey, what's happening?
1: I have a new product, which is my new sweater. I oh, got this that's here awesome. in San Francisco, mm. but you know what? While we've been here, of course, gold and silver have And Bitcoin have been on a tear Bitcoin is kind of like uh, really going to the moon just as our series to the moon ended Bitcoin and gold extend their gains as investors flee fiat currencies due to global central bank madness well I
0: think that's an important point you know when the central bank in America the Federal Reserve Bank indicated that they were going to go on to Permanent quantitative easing. Money printing as far as the eye could see without stopping. That was the bottom, the, the, the recent bottom in Bitcoin around 3,300. That's when that statement came out. Then folks started to look around for hard money solutions to a fiat money system gone awry. And of course, you're gonna look at two places, gold and Bitcoin. What the gold bugs don't seem to appreciate, Bitcoin made hard money fashionable again. And that halo effect has spilled over to gold. If it weren't for Bitcoin, there would be no current rally in gold. And yet the gold bugs have no gratitude whatsoever. They continue to hide in their their shelters uh, and don't want to come out and talk to anybody. And it's really sad.
1: I believe this airs on 4th of July, I hope. Nevertheless, it is the week of 4th of July. It's supposed to be our Independence Day. And this is the liberation, this is the original Bitcoin and gold, this is like liberation from these central banks, from these uh, monetary insane policies. And I want to look at an analogy here because we like to do that, compare it to other stories in the natural world. Here's a headline from the United States down on the Gulf Coast of America. So from Louisiana down to the panhandle of Florida dolphins are dying at an alarming rate along the gulf coast no one knows why scientists are puzzled by a disturbing trend in the waters along four gulf coast states almost 300 dead and dying dolphins have washed ashore since february about three times the usual number I would say it's concerning and bordering on alarming primarily because it's a group of dolphins that have been impacted because of other unusual mortality events. Scientists are exploring several causes, including the lingering effects of the Deepwater Horizon oil spill in 2010, to skin lesions on many recovered dolphins that indicate freshwater exposure. It could also be chemicals, pollutants, or a combination. We have these historic rains to the Midwest it's causing mass runoff into the gulf with all the fertilizer and we have the deep water horizon and they all all of these toxic chemicals all this toxic money printing on one side all these toxic chemicals being spewed into the gulf the nature And all these dolphins are showing up dead, and they don't know how or why. they just like, gee, what is going on here?
0: It's a recurring story we've covered for a while, that corporations have what are called externalities. And in the energy business, whether it's the Gulf oil spill, the penalty for BP was a slap on the wrist, effectively. And yet they've caused enormous ecological disaster, and it's not a one-off event. They corporations, particularly in the energy industry, have caused spectacular ecological devastation all over the world, but they don't have to pay for it. They put that cost onto the balance sheet of the taxpayer. Same thing in the fracking industry, same thing in the pharmaceutical industry. They want to make a quick buck. The crisis of having 70,000 dead OxyContin Addicts last year that's borne by the taxpayer not by the company selling the oxycontin now that brings us to central banks They spew a toxic effutilum called Fiat money, okay a by the way is a word. I just made up But I think it's appropriate because it's my show and whatever I say goes so they've got this toxic effutilum called fiat money and it is turns sensible accounting practices on their head so that whenever a corporation commits a major crime, whether it's Jamie Dimon or BP, they get bailed out and the results are predictable, global, eco-financial catastrophe.
1: When you spew a whole bunch of fertilizer into the Gulf, when you spew a whole bunch of oil and all the, um, remember the ingredients that were thrown on top of the oil uh, into the Corrects it. Corrects it. So when you spew all of that stuff into there, and you don't need a science degree to figure out that nature is going to be destroyed. The same thing here with the money printing. They keep printing money, hiding all the bad uh, fraudulent debts from the, the banks, from the big banks on Wall Street, from the big banks in Europe. And they keep um, being confused about, gee, why was Trump elected? Why did Brexit happen? Why are the yellow vests upset here in San Francisco? Why are all these homeless people on the street? I just don't understand it. And they keep on acting really stupid, like everybody else out here who has no economics degree can see what's going on. Here's some headlines from the past year from relating to the Fed. Fed's cash carry says low wage growth is big conundrum. Another CNBC headline, the jobs conundrum continues. How are we not getting higher wages?
0: Right. So it's denial of climate catastrophe and we have denial of fiat money catastrophe. And these two things are sourced at the same place. An oligarchy of climate and fiat money polluters who are in bed with our lawmakers who are hell-bent on destroying humanity and civilization as we know it for a quick buck. They're taking consumption that would have taken 100 years or 200 years and compressing it into 24 months with the obvious catastrophic effect of making Earth no longer habitable for human beings. Of course, we're at a Bitcoin conference, so Bitcoin solves this problem by bringing hard money back into the economy and making everyone accountable. It's similar to a gold standard we used to have, which made accountability fashionable hundred years ago, but it makes it 10 times better because it happens every 10 minutes. Every 10 minutes, every single transaction that's ever happened is audited and everyone's got to account for that transaction. And the money retains its purchasing power going forward. It does you can't print it away. And the result are accountable participants in the society. And we are at the cusp now of a major breakthrough. The banks are going to be disintermediated. The central banks are going to be disintermediated. Everyone who can't figure out how to add 2 plus 2 is going to be disintermediated. The climate deniers are going to be obliterated. The fiat money supporters are going to be obliterated. It's going to be a freaking bloodbath out there, which is we're way overdue.
1: Um, I I might also add at this Bitcoin conference in San Francisco put on by Bitcoin magazine that uh, Edward Snowden was uh, Skyped in and he said something that I think is probably a revelation that hadn't been said before, which is that his, when, when he first transferred, he uploaded all that data he took from the NSA, he uploaded it to a server, and he paid, he had paid for that server with Bitcoin, because he knew that the surveillance state, that if he had done it on a credit card, it would be traced to him, and the NSA might know that, you know, here is an agent who has a server and uploading these documents. So he paid for his server with Bitcoin. So that was the first that I've ever heard him say that. Right.
0: An amazing revelation. It's showing how Bitcoin transformed the globe's discussion about surveillance. And look, people ask me all the time, what if the government outlaws Bitcoin? And they don't understand Bitcoin and they don't understand law, right? The law is made by those who buy the law. Laws are paid for. Laws are pay to play. Any, everywhere in the world, yes, you've had the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, and, which were anomalies because they were done in the public interest for the public, we, the people. But this been eroded hor- horrifically over the past 100, and, uh, 240 years. Now we're at a global state of pay-to-play for law. 100,000 will buy you a congressman in America. That's pretty well documented. You can change the law anytime you want to. He who has the Bitcoin makes the laws. Used to be he who has the gold makes the law. He who has the Bitcoin makes the law. The Bitcoin community now, we're heading toward multi-hundred billionaires and trillionaires. We can buy any lawmaker we need to pass any law we need. Don't tell me they're gonna outlaw it because, money talks and senators are happy to take it well
1: they can't outlaw it because it's uh open source money and open source money following natural law and natural law always wins in the end because it's proven as nozoma Haye said here at the conference if any system whatever it is does not follow natural law it is fragile and unstable so that's why we see the global fiat currency system collapsing it's not any sort of um, conspiracy theory, or wish, or hope, or nobody wants chaos, but the fact is, it is unstable by the very built-in nature of it, i.e. it doesn't have nature's law, so therefore it will, like, hierarchies don't exist like that. You need, uh, you know, the the, uh, elite pyramid whereby all the money is printed for just one small group of people, and everybody is shocked. Those very same elite are looking around going, I don't understand why all these people are rising up. I don't understand why they're buying gold and buying Bitcoin. I don't understand why they don't love our system.
0: Right, exactly right. That was a brilliant speech by Nazomi. She's in our series, To the Moon. She's been a guest on our show a few times. And the discussion about natural law as it applies to unalienable rights that are codified in documents like the Constitution applies to money in the form of Bitcoin. And it's that's the soft version of my edict that no congressman can't be bribed
1: before the french revolution there was a system whereby it was a bribeable system it was a corrupt system as uh, bastiat would say a corrupt system run by corrupt people is corrupt but the fact is um what we did when we overthrew the french kings and the aristocracy was we we restored natural law which is that we have an unalienable right uh, you are as good and powerful and right as a king, and no king is better than you. And and the same thing has happened in the U.S., where we we have to do a separation of the state and money because the fact is, there is a divine right granted uniquely to bankers to never, ever have to suffer any loss and everybody else has to pay for those losses, and that's the same exact situation that you had before. And I don't think it's uh, uh, corruption will last. You might be able to pay off for it in the short term, but in the end of the day, I think it will collapse.
0: Right. I mean, excellent point. And uh, unalienable rights, as it applies to money, and the idea that you have to separate the state from money. That's a very key point, and Bitcoin allows that to happen.
1: So, in the last 10 seconds here, I just want to quickly turn to one headline Trickle Down Theory. Powell chastises Trump, praises himself. Powell is out there, Jerome Powell, head of the Fed, and he believes now all his money printing is trickling down. So, he's encouraging the people not to rise up.
0: (laughs) Well, uh, we've heard that story before, and it doesn't uh, ring true, Jerome Powell. You are fake news. Stay tuned for the second half. A lot more coming away. Don't go away. Welcome back to the Kaiser Report. I'm Max Kaiser. Time to turn to Peter McCormick, who is well known in the crypto space. Peter, welcome. Hey, Max. How you doing? Fantastic. What I wanted to talk to you about, first of all, is about journalism yep. in general. Now, in the United States and around the world, there was a trend in journalism, uh, which we saw with writers like uh, Hunter S. Thompson, Norman Mailer—they became immersive in their topics, and they they took the approach of being like, oh, I'm just going to write what I see. I'm just kind of walking into this thing. Uh, George Plimpton in the yep. U.S. wrote about this. He became a professional football player. Now you, in my view, you've taken this similar approach, where you said, Look, I'm going to just going to write what I see. I'm yeah. going to document what's going on here. And uh, is that a fair characterization, first of all, of your approach, and what have you discovered?
2: Yeah, so I think that's pretty fair. I've kind of gone into the space. Uh, Somebody's coming quite late, but my show's growing quite quickly. And I've just found stories I want to get into. Um, The Mt. Gox one, really wanted to get into that. And uh, I'm quite interested in what's going to happen looking back at SegWit. But in doing so, you come across people who come very hostile if you talk to certain people or you cover certain topics in the way they don't want. And also, I've also wrestled with people saying, you're a journalist and you have a responsibility. I used to say I'm not a journalist. I used to say, I'm just a content producer. Now I accept I'm a journalist, but I don't think I'm a great journalist because I don't I don't necessarily spend all the time fact-checking, putting all the, like, find all well, the background Well, I think work. In
0: journalism in this space is, is it's interesting because it's not really something that's been with it from the beginning. It's usually been technologists and it's been um, you know, hackers. Yeah. And so this idea of a journalist in the space is a f- fairly new concept, and a lot of people I don't I don't think they understand what journalists do. Yeah. Um, you know, I've seen some of the feedback, uh, people being critical about even interviewing certain guests. Yeah. But you know, the role of the journalist is to um, talk to people that are, um, are noteworthy. You yeah. know, and let the audience see what they have to say. Uh, that doesn't mean that you yourself are necessarily endorsing what's being said, but that's not the point. Journalists are, 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 in, are, are un, without bias, ideally.
2: Yeah, I mean, I do have a bias. I have a Bitcoin bias, so say over Bitcoin Cash. Um, one of the things I really struggle with, though, is when I do an interview, I hate this term where people say, oh, you're given a scam or a platform. It really bothers me because nobody's ever given a platform, they're offered an interview. and. I think that puts undue pressure on people. And also, I always return to them and say, well, Louis Theroux, I mean, you know Louis Theroux. He interviews pedophiles and rapists and murderers. He's not giving them a platform. Right,
0: Louis Theroux in the UK, he's a brilliant journalist in that he plays that British thing, if you Mm. will, of kind of walking in and saying, oh, hello. Um, I I happen to notice that there's uh, some children about. Uh, Well, can you tell us some details about that? But moving into some of your work specifically. So yeah. the Mt. Gox work is, I thought, um, uh, uh, I mean, I follow your work, and I thought it was um, a, kind of a seminal moment because a lot of people talk about Mt. Gox. Yeah. You got on a plane, and you went to Tokyo, and you interviewed all the major players. And so what was that like? What did you discover? Well, what Mark Capellas? I mean, you talked yeah. to him. What was that like?
2: Well, it came around as a, like a strange set of circumstances. What happened was I'd been trying to get an interview with Mark for about a year. Uh, he did an AMA on Reddit, he replied, he said yes, and then I couldn't get hold of him. I did an interview with Jed McCaleb, and Jed was like, started talking about Mount Gox, said some things that were you know, controversial or that people hadn't heard before. I then sent it to Mark, and Mark said, come and do an interview. So I flew out to Tokyo, did that interview, and then what happened was some other people got in touch. I thought, actually, this isn't gonna be just two separate interviews. I can package six things up and make uh, kind of a series out of it. I guess I, what I found out about it is Jed probably sold uh, Mark a business that was insolvent, probably. I can't confirm that, but it sounds like he did. And I think Mark Carpallis got a lot of anger towards him. But I think, rather than being any kind of scammer, I think he was more just out of his depth. You know, we still have exchanges being hacked today. Binance hacked recently. You know, we have years of uh, seeing the types of attacks that happens, and, and exchanges still struggling. So it's not surprising it happened to Mt. Gox. And I don't hold any malice to uh, Mark Carpallis. I actually quite liked him. Um, so
0: you met with him and yeah. you found him to be personable uh, of someone and that comes through in the interview and I think that's a valuable document. Yeah. Now let's cut, you know, flash forward to what's happening today because yeah. you really poked a bee's nest if you will. Yeah. The third rail in crypto is, is like Craig Wright, you know, here's a guy, he's litigious, he seems unhinged yeah. and he's a bit of, he's out there. You decided, made the choice of, you know what, I'm going to take this guy right full-on
2: what did you do? What's the status of this now? A lot of people don't know the backstory to this, so what happened was Hodlernaught got served papers first. Hodlernaught yeah. is a
0: popular character in the space, yeah. and he's got the little astronaut helmet on, and he's a beloved uh, uh,
2: Twitter meme, yes. And I saw the papers, and I thought, the best thing is for this to become public. Um, not everyone agreed with me, by the way, but I thought, get it public, and I can use my platform and my audience to kind of expose him, so I just directly called out, uh, Craig Wright via Calvin I said he's not Satoshi, he's a liar, he's a moron, sue me, here's my address. And obviously now they're suing me, we're now in a legal process, he's obviously got his other legal process in the US with Kleiman. But yeah, we're just in the process now, we're currently working with our lawyers to, lawyers to file the defence. I've just had my first bill and yeah, it's happening, it's uh, probably a bit reckless and stupid. And, and a bunch of people have said like, oh, you're just an attention... You're doing this for attention. Can I say that? <laughs> you can say that. <laughs> well, it anyway, and, but, uh, uh,
0: I, I think that's a, an okay phrase
2: to use. If it won't be, it'll be bleeped. Yeah. But people will know what you're saying. But yeah, it, but people are saying this for attention. And, you know, <laughs> I can't deny it will benefit me that people are going to be more people exposed to my podcast because of it. But I did it more because. Nort uh, was getting bullied. He was, they were trying to dox him. I thought I can divert attention away, and you know the whole story itself is stupid. And I fully expect us to, to win it. So yeah, I'm, you know, I'm. I don't always make sensible decisions. Like, I work hard on the podcast, and I've grown it, but sometimes I do reckless and stupid thing- things, and this is one of those reckless, stupid things, but I'm still glad I'm doing it. Yeah, but once
0: again, I'm uh, you know, thinking of, like, Hunter S. Thompson or something, uh, dropping acid and hanging out with Motorcycle Gang, it doesn't sound like a, the safe choice. No. But he produced great literature and great journalism. So um, you're producing journalism slash literature. I mean, we'll be looking at this five years ten years from now and we'll be reading it and it'll give us a literary sense of what was going on as well as a journalistic sense of what's going on i just don't understand the criticism at all except that the community is unaware perhaps of what this whole industry called
2: journalism does yeah uh, but- I but mean, journalists always stand up right whether they're you know whether they're a journalist who might be in hong kong standing up in front of the police and you know, there was a guy recently who was saying, go on, shoot me, shoot me. Like, journalists usually uh, tend to stand up against things that are Well, let me right.
0: ask you this. One of, the, one of the key phrases of Bitcoin is censorship resistance,
2: right? Doesn't that apply also to the written word? Not for, for Craig Wright. I mean, that was the first thing I said, Max. I said, the guy who invented supposedly invented censorship resistant money wants to sue me for words. Right. His character seems
0: completely opposite to what you'd expect. Totally. So uh, I, I was reading recently that now one of your children actually have gotten into into Bitcoin in a big Both way. He seemed quite proud of this. Yeah. And um, how does that, uh, what do you think, I guess the question is looking ahead, how will Bitcoin impact the next generation's lives. I mean, we talk talk about it in terms of its monetary use, but there's mm-hmm. a wider implication there, all, uh, crossing all kinds of, we, we just heard Edward Snowden here in the event yeah. talk and how it impacted his life. What do you see the next generation, wh- how this may
2: impact their lives? So it's quite kind of interesting you say that because I discussed that with my son, Connor. Do you remember when MP3s first came out? I was still buying CDs for two to three years after that. And I've got a big stack of CDs in a wardrobe at home that I never use. I, I just use MP3s. I use Spotify. But there was a time it took for me to kind of a, kind of get used to that. My kids would never afford to or ever buy a CD. And I think it's going to be the same with Bitcoin and and I'm going to say digital money as well, because I don't think it's going to be only Bitcoin. Again, I think there's different types of currency. But I think it's just going to be natural for the max. You know. We're seeing the nature of money change before our very eyes. We have Bitcoin, which is now back over 200 billion market cap. We've got Facebook Libra coin coming. The nature of money, who controls it, and how it works is changing before our very eyes. I think for future generations, this is going to be very, very natural to them. For more so, my daughter who's nine. By the time she's, you know, my age, I think all money will be digital. I don't see a world with paper money, and hopefully it's going to be a world where Bitcoin is kind of change the nature of money so it, it operates better. and pe- People kind of take a bit of power away from governments and a lot of the rubbish they do. You know, people talk about the regulators in
0: Washington, D.C. Yeah. I'm looking through my tweet stream and there you are posing with the regulators in Washington, D.C. So once again, you know, throwing yourself into the story. What Tell us what was going
2: on there. Well, there's a background to that. So I did interview Hester Peirce at the SEC and uh, I went in a Metallica shirt. So the, Bob, the one that Bobby Axelrod wore in Billions, I thought it'd be kind of funny, see if I can get a photo. I got the photo and she said to me, "If you, I asked if she can get me an interview with Christopher Giancarlo. He said, yeah, but if you ever see him, you've got to wear a suit, he'll kick you out of the building. I went to interview Brian Quintens, and I thought, well, I haven't got the rules with him. So I put on a motorhead shirt, thinking hopefully I'll get another photo. While I was there, Brian Quint, uh, sorry, Christopher Giancarlo turned up and I was like, I told him what happened with the Hester and I said, can we get a photo? And he said, yeah. So we went out to do the photo, and then Brian—no, uh, uh, Christopher Giancarlo turned around to Brian and said, oh no, let's go and get our jackets. So they went and got their jackets, and, and, and uh, Giancarlo was like, right, you will be serious. So I was just like, put up my devil horns. I thought this would be an iconic photo. It's like the tattooed motorhead T-shirt wearing metal head and, and the regulators. But the the real story in this is that they're very open-minded. They wanna talk about this. They're interested in Bitcoin. They're, and and they're not all stuffy suit guys. They're like they care about what's going on. And all right. they're all open to Are they interested, like gathering intelligence,
0: because they're never going to be pro Bitcoin, or did you get the sense that they see that this is paradigm changing and they better understand what's happening to stay relevant?
2: I think it's a mix of things. I think someone like Brian Quintenz, he he's career-driven, you know, he's a commissioner, and what he said is it's not about being pro-Bitcoin. He, he doesn't want to pick winners and losers. He's pro-innovation, pro-choice, and they know if they ban Bitcoin, it will go somewhere else. You know, they don't want they don't want that opportunity okay, taken. Okay, but they're going to get,
0: obviously, a lot of pressure yeah. from above, mm-hmm. and, um, you know, regulators don't have a great reputation uh, in defending markets for the people, to use that term loosely. Yeah. They tend to be more um defending the interests of the banks and wall street etc it's been my observation if in fact they balk and they can't really get with the program here where will bitcoin industry go you know you're a globetrotter now i see you all over the world where do you think the hot spot where will for for bitcoin in the future
2: i think Undoubtedly, I think the states right now is a hot spot. It depends what's going to happen. Wyoming? What about Wyoming? Yeah. What's well, happening? Caitlin Long's Caitlin. doing some great stuff up there. Had her on the podcast again recently. There's a lot of stuff happening there. Uh, most of my interviews are out here. I come, come here all the time. Not so much stuff is happening in the UK. Asia's crazy for it, but they're a bit more tokeny. They like right. their tokens. Um, I don't know. I think it's a global phenomenon. That's even it's even though China have banned it, people are still buying and selling Bitcoin in China. So. It, I think it just goes, it goes everywhere, its tentacles reach everywhere.
0: All right, let's talk about the podcast, so it's called What Bitcoin Did. What Bitcoin Did. Right, Sally. So only maybe a year and a half old, right? Uh, uh, 20 years. months, yeah. 20, 20 months. months. So it's pretty quickly, you know, rocketed up the most must to listen list. You've gotten some great interviews and uh, some good gets as they say in the business yep. and um, very entertaining stuff. And you. Interesting and very transparent about publishing all the cash that comes in, the expenses, and for aspiring podcasters who want to know, is this a business they can get into? Look at what you document quite clearly what the what the economics are yep. that people can expect, uh, and, and uh, that's a valuable service in of itself. Peter McCormick, thanks so m- much for being on the Kaiser Report. Cheers, man. Thanks for having me. And uh, we'll get my Metallica shirt out, and you'll see me wearing that soon. Not. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of the Kaiser Report with me, Max Kaiser and Stacey Herbert. I'd like to thank our guest, Peter McCormick, of What Bitcoin Did podcast. If you want to catch us on Twitter, it's Kaiser Report. Until next time, bye, y'all.